Good morning. Thanks for braving the weather today amid uh, Hurricane Harvey and all the rain that's being dumped on us today. You see the title for the sermon up there. I promise. I didn't just say, oh, there's a hurricane coming. Let's pick out a story about a storm in the Bible. This is actually, a, a, the text is picked months in advance for all of these sermons. And we follow um, from time to time a historical setting called a pericope lectionary that has lists of Bible readings that the church has been using for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we're in the year and the, and the day, actually, where this reading comes up and it just so happens that we have a storm and many of our roads are underwater. You made it here safely. By the grace of God, not many lives um, are taken so far that we know of in this hurricane. Our prayers are with us. But the title of the sermon is, Jesus Keeps Your Head Above Water. And we're in Matthew chapter 14. In your service folder, we don't have it printed out, but there's this exercise that we want to do this morning where you can pull out this book in front of you called the Bible. It's in your pew. And turn to Matthew chapter 14 or pull out your phone. We'll allow phones in church. You can open it up to your Holy Word app and, and uh, turn to Matthew chapter 14 in the version that you prefer. And you can follow along. As you do that, I want to introduce um, the sermon with a story. In his book, The Normal Christian Life, Christian leader and missionary named Watchman Nee tells the story about how he watched a man drown. He was, on, um, he was in a cabin living with about 20 other Christian brothers, and the water in the cabin was pretty bad. And so every morning they would go out, and they would wash in the river, and they would swim there as well. Uh, Watchman tells the story about how he was looking out into the river, and, uh, and he saw one of the brothers flailing with his arms up in the air like this, calling for help. He was drowning. He had a cramp in his leg, and he was screaming out for help. There was a swimmer nearby, another brother, who was a very strong swimmer, the strongest swimmer of the whole group, just a couple of meters away. And Watchman, he, he yells out to the, the swimmer, and he says, Hey, uh, our brother over there, he's drowning. Can you help him? Go over and swim over and help him. And he started yelling at him, and and encouraging him to go over, but the strong swimmer who did hear him just stayed there. As the arms are flailing and, and, and all this, and, and, and Nee gets upset, he tells the story, and he starts yelling at him about how he needs to do this right now or else. Until finally, moments later, the man who was flailing and screaming, his head went underwater. And then, and only then, did that swimmer Swim over to the man, dive under the water, put his arms around him, and bring him safely to land. After he resuscitated the man, and the man was okay, and he was still upset, you know. He went over to him, and, and he said to the man, Now, what kind of Christian are you? You let him suffer, and you let him flail his arms, and you let him scream? You've you got to have better Christian love. You've got to rescue him right away. And what did the swimmer say? He said, if I would have gone over to him when he was kicking and flailing and screaming, what would he have done? He would have taken both of them down. But, and Nee concludes with this, he says, a drowning man cannot be saved until he is utterly exhausted and ceases to make the slightest effort to save himself.
why, God, do you feel like not helping me right now? Why are you on the sideline in the middle of my suffering? Because it must be either you don't care or maybe you can't do it. Amid all of the social turmoil, God, where are you? Amid the storms, why would you let this happen? Or maybe it's not out there or it's not in the news feed, but maybe it's in your own life. And you say, God, why would you allow this to happen? This hurts. Beginning school. (laughs) Sending my kids away to school. It hurts. Where are you? When the assignments at work pile up, When the pressure on family and home build to a point that I I can't handle it, where are you? And why would you let this happen to me? You know, the disciples of Jesus, they had that same question. And this morning I want to share with you the account, the story of how Jesus keeps his loved ones' heads above water. It starts this way. Jesus was in the northern part of Israel, and he was going around healing the sick. He was feeding thousands of people, we heard in a sermon earlier. We heard about how he fed 5,000 men, and not including women and children, so some scholars say over 10,000 people were fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. And he did this miracle, an incredible miracle, to teach them that he not only can feed the stomach, but his talking points would go on down in his ministry, and he would use that as an illustration about how he didn't just come to give them food for their stomachs, but he came to give them food for their souls, and he was the bread of life. Well, it was right after that, in Matthew chapter 14, that we find Jesus sending his disciples out into a boat on the water. And that's where it picks up, Matthew chapter 14. Some of the first words are this, immediately... Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side of the sea or the lake while he dismissed the crowd, the crowd that he had just fed. And first of all, before we go any farther, circle, underline, highlight that first word, immediately, immediately. It's an adverb. I'm getting your brains ready to go back to school. Do you see that? That's a verb that tells us about timing. And if you're wondering about timing in your life, take this word, the Greek word is Oitheus, immediately, without delay, without hesitation, without pondering. Hmm, I wonder what Nathaniel's going to think if I send him out on the lake into a storm. I wonder what Bartholomew's going to think about me if I do this. No, he doesn't do this because he's so sure as he sends his disciples out into this lake that this is the best thing that can happen for them. And you know what's about to happen. In the same time that he's sending them immediately, without hesitation, into a storm, as we full know well, as we read on, what does Jesus do? It says he removed himself from them, and he goes over to this mountain, and he starts to pray. And you're saying to yourself, well, why is Jesus praying? Isn't Jesus God? Why does he need to pray? It's true, he is God, but we also know from the Bible that he also is man, flesh and blood like you and me. And it says that he spends time alone in prayer on this mountain, as a human, speaking with his Father in heaven. Because he knows that his strength, where his will is, is in the will of God. And this is just a side note, but if Jesus turns off the phone, 
turns off the screen, shuts the door. The busiest man on earth, the most important man on earth, who have people knocking at his door constantly for, 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 for healing. How much more you and I, sinners, turn off the phone? Not really, if you're looking up the Bible passage right now, that's fine. But shut down the screen, close the door. It's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for you and me. Okay, Jesus is praying. He sends his disciples out onto this water in this rickety old boat that's put together and glued together by organic material. I mean, this is in some ways insane, right? Jesus knows what's about to happen, but he still sends them out. And then it says in verse 23, later that night, he was there alone, Jesus on the mountain, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And I don't have to remind you about a buffeting wave and wind situation when you came into church today and your car was going back and forth on the road trying to stay on with the gusts of wind. Look at the two things where, uh, location-wise. Where is God and where are his loved ones? Physically, right now, God is on a mountain. His loved ones, he sent off to sea. Far away from each other. In fact, it says that they were a considerable distance from land. A scary place back then in ancient times was the sea because you didn't know when the storms were going to come up. You didn't have the weather channel helping you out with radar and all this stuff that we have today. It was a terrifying thing. And then as they go into about two or three miles, some scholars think, this storm starts buffeting against them and these trained fishermen are rowing with their muscles straining for hours and hours and they're yelling and their voices are coarse and they're frightened in the storm. You can't see where you're going on the water with all of the waves that are buffeting and the winds that are blowing. You don't know which way is up. Verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. Walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus, there's that word again, say it with me, immediately, without delay, without hesitation, without pondering. Do they really deserve this? Do they really deserve my grace that I would come out to them? Because they've failed me so many times in the past. No, without hesitation. Said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Three things from that passage. First of all, look at the timing. Shortly before dawn, in other translations, or I'm going to say in uh, older English translations, it translates the Greek even better during the fourth watch which in Roman time, in our modern time now, it was about 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning. And it was during that time that Jesus comes out to them. Now, what time did he immediately send them out the day before? After supper. So they've been rowing and they've been straining and they've been in this storm for how long? Not one hour, not two hours. Jesus has let them be in this storm for up to nine hours, we estimate, where they're rowing and they're, they're wondering in their mind, why would Jesus ever do this? Why would God send me out on this lake where there's this storm and my life is, I may never see land again? They're thinking this for nine hours, wondering where Jesus is. Number two, look at the pace. Do you see Jesus' pace that he's working on 
he ran out to them, right? No. He sprinted out. He flew like a speeding bullet out to them from the mountaintop. No. He walked out to them in his own time, in the time that he knew. And I'm guessing, and I'm taking a sanctified imagination, that if it said that he was up on a mountain on land and that he came walking out to them, Jesus had appeared and could appear to anybody at any time, right? But he, in my guess, went down from that mountain, step by step, like a human being, flesh and blood. And when the land met the water, and the water had waves that were crashing over it, six-foot waves and winds that you couldn't stand up to, Jesus, step by step, walked over those waves like a mom or dad walks over a laundry basket or toys in the living room without a problem in the world. True flesh and blood, but true God. And what did he do? He came out to them. And his message that he had to them? Hey, straighten up before I come and help you. No, immediately the message is this. He says, take courage. I am here immediately. Do not be afraid. It's starting to make sense. Where are you, God? Why have you allowed me to do this? Why have you allowed this situation to come into my life? He sent them away so that he could get them back. Peter, in verse 28, do you like this phrase? Just like Peter. He's known as the rock man because he has this faith that is, uh, in moments, just this rock-solid faith. And he's, he's the first always to jump out of the boat, and he's the last one to retreat. And he's the one that says, Jesus, I'm going to go to you, with you to the cross. There's nothing that's going to stop me. And so he likes the challenge of faith. And, and Peter, he says to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out onto the water. First of all, note, just a little side note, that he's putting his faith in what? He's putting his faith in God's promise and his word. He knows that Jesus, when Jesus speaks... Five loaves of bread and two fish turn into a spread for thousands. And when Jesus speaks, and only when Jesus speaks and God speaks, can he allow Peter to do something like to walk on water. When usually a rock sinks with God's word and his promise, that rock can walk on water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. And friends, here in this moment... God and man are walking together over the storm. Think about that. What's a storm when you're walking with God? And what are waves when you're lockstep with the creator of the universe who commands the wind and the waves and who steps over them like toys and allows you to walk through the storm too? Jesus didn't calm the storm at this point, but he's walking all over it with the one that he loves. Verse 30, but when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me! Where are Peter's eyes now? Not on his Savior, but he's on those waves and he's on the condition that he's around. And those conditions that he's around have become, in his mind, bigger 
than the Savior that's walking on water. And what happens? He begins to sink. As you go to work, and as all of the assignments pile up and the workload, I understand <laughs> you're a professional at work and you, 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 you've been trained to do this, but really, really, can you do it all? Do you feel that way all the time? The pressure mounts and you look at it and you say, well, the solution to this mounting pressure at work must be that I have to pour myself into it more and more and I need to do it better and better and better before I'm going to become accepted by my boss or accepted by my family. I need to perform more to do this. Well, guess what you've taken your eyes off of immediately? You've taken your eyes off the one that says, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God and do it because I made you my child and I love you. And the very one that can walk with you through the tough assignments, now you've neglected. Whether it be devotion life, whether it be time together like we have here this morning around the Word of God, because you're so caught up in the waves. Students are going back to school. You're going to be tempted this year, and I know it's fresh, but you're going to be tempted to get caught up in the work or caught up in the popularity, and pour yourself into that. And then find yourself wondering, uh, how do I get past the next day? How do I get past the next week with the expectations of my teachers and my parents? And, and all of a sudden, and I, and I pray that this doesn't happen, that you take your eye off your Savior, and that the waves become so big that you wonder about your own life. But you have a Savior, who comes to you, and he says this, he says, it doesn't matter if you get an A or an F, whether you're in the in crowd or not in the in crowd, I love you. And with me, <laughs> I'm always going to be in the waves, and I'm always going to walk over them with you. Verse 31, oh, I'm sorry, actually, before we go on to verse 31, do you see what Peter cried out? Say it with me. Lord, save me exactly why Jesus sent them out immediately in verse 22. Why did he send them out? Why did he send them into this danger that, that their heads were sinking and they were going beneath the water? The only reason that we see in this story that he sends them out, I, I imagine that like when Peter said, save me, Jesus said, Eureka! That's it! Right there! That's why I did this. That's why I sent you out. That's why I need you to go under the water and see that you're completely helpless on your own. That's why I need you to realize that on your own you can't do this and that you need to be rescued. And that's why I came for you, Peter. I came for you, Dan. I came for you, student. I came for you, worker. I came for you because you can't do it on your own. And so when we are completely broken and we completely see that we have nothing in us that we can bring to Jesus and that the workload is way too hard for us and even in our best attempts, we sin whether it's in our relationships or at school or at work, then we cry out, save me, and then verse 31 comes in. The third time you heard this word. Are you getting the idea now? Say it. Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? What does immediately mean? Without hesitation. Without pondering, Peter, are you going to do this for me when I'm? Because if he would make his love that way, should he have reached out to Peter? 
Was Peter there for him around that fire later on? You see, the faith that Peter has isn't really about Peter at all. The faith that we have isn't really about us or about what we bring to the table, but it's about the object. A God that loves unconditionally. Because I, Dan, (laughs) have gotten so caught up in the move that I'm going through, and I get so caught up in all the projects, and I get so caught up in everything going on at church or at the home, and I get so caught up that I keep my eye off the prize, and I have neglected him. But he's the one, the story says, that reaches down as I'm sinking, and he says, regardless of how unfaithful you've been to me, I'm going to remain faithful to you, even when you've abandoned me at school, at work, wherever. Immediately, without pondering about your past sins, about your past failings as a father, as a mother, as a child, as a student, whatever. He says, I'm going to reach down and I'm going to pull you up immediately. That's called grace, and that's God's love that reaches out, not dependent on you, but dependent on him and how he is loving and he is kind and he is generous in our lives. That's called the gospel. Verse 32, And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him. Just take note of that. We're going to get to it in a second. Worshipped him. Not say thank you. They worshipped him. We'll talk about why. Saying, truly, you are the Son of God. That's what their worship was. They acknowledged who Jesus was. He wasn't just a boat that came out to them and rescued them, but he was much more than that. He was God, and he is God. Okay, so now you've heard the account, the story about how Jesus rescues and brings those people that are drowning, the ones that he loves, heads above water. My question to you now is, do you believe this is true for you? This is where the rubber hits the road between the word of God and your heart. Number one, do you believe, just as the story says, that Jesus loves you enough to send you into a storm? That if God is allowing some sort of inequality or if he's allowing some sort of injustice or if he's allowing some sort of pain in your life, maybe it's self-inflicted, but maybe it's inflicted by another person. Do you believe that God saw that before it came and he allowed you to go into that? Not because he's an evil God, but because of what scripture says is he's there to strengthen you through this. This is what it says in um, 1 Peter 5.10. Peter writing, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So have you ever considered that what you're going through right now may be the best thing that God has for you at this time in life? It may not feel comfortable. It may feel like you're rowing nine hours on a lake. But he sent them out there to get them back. I can remember in 2013, my wife knows I love to tell this story because I tell it all the time, and maybe you've heard it too many times, but in 2013, I ran a half marathon in um, Waco, and I got to the final mile. Okay, that's the big good news. I got to the final mile, so I made it that far. I hadn't done the, I had done the running conditioning. I hadn't done a lot of the diet conditioning, and I learned very quickly that when you're running around Lady Bird Lake, that's different than running up and down the Brazos Mountains, like the, like the route was. Well, I found myself at the end of the race completely devoid of nutrients in my muscles. 
That flooded my kidneys all at once. It's called rhabdomyolysis. Uh, many soldiers that go on long marches, they suffer from this, and some of them die from it uh, because your kidneys shut down. My kidneys started to go into that mode of shutting down because of the flooding into them, and I found myself delusional. Uh, we won't go there. <laughs> I found myself in an ambulance. I woke up in an ambulance. And I remember looking up, and I saw the stranger there with a the bag of liquids by my head, and I knew I had run a race, and I knew that somehow I'd fallen down, but I didn't know what was going on, and I felt freezing. I felt, I felt very warm inside, and I asked, and I said to the person, I said, am I going to make it? And I wanted him to answer a lot quicker. <laughs> and he says, well, you're very warm, and you feel very hot on the inside, I bet, but you're freezing cold to the touch on the outside. And I said, am I going to make it? And he says, we're going to get you help. And I said, that's no comfort at all. <laughs> but as I drove in that ambulance, and I look back on it today, I had never prayed to God like I had in that moment. I had never been that close to heaven in that moment. And because God allowed me to go through that, today I can talk with you if you ever had a near-death experience, and I can know what it feels like. Because he uses the storms in our life to strengthen and to establish his love. And never before, I mean, I had always appreciated eternal life and heaven and the idea, but never before had I thought to myself, I know where I'm going because of this promise for me, even here in the ambulance, through the storm, lockstep with God. Never before had I taken, uh, before I had taken my family for granted, my life for granted, but never will I again. Maybe you have a moment like that. So God, number one, may send you into the storm, but it might be the best thing for you. Number two, Jesus loves you enough to enter the storm. Storms were frightening enough back then. Jesus came out to them, and he said what? Take courage. I am here. Don't be afraid. The story of the Bible is this, and this is just one of the many stories, but this is a reflection of what Jesus has done in all of our lives when he came. He's God, and he came down not from the mountain, but he came down from heaven as a holy and perfect God. And he lived a life just like you and me. He cried, he laughed, he went to parties, he went to funerals, he was disappointed, he was satisfied. He had all, of, and you can read through all the stories of Jesus, and you'll see that this man is extremely human. But then you read a story like this, and you say, but he's also God. And then you keep on reading and you realize that he reaches down and he picks up Peter with this hand and pulls him out and saves him. But then with that same hand, what does he do? He puts it out on a cross. That hand would rescue by allowing nails to go through it. Not to save us from drowning our heads underwater, but to save us from drowning in our sin. So that if we ever are underwater, literally, and that's a reality today in Texas, that there's life after this. And that life's given to you for free. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. But it's given to you because he put his hands out and said, take courage. I'm here. Do not be afraid. And so when Peter writes in First Peter that this water about baptism now saves you also, he's saying, I'm coming to you in, in that water and I'm bringing you to me. And when he says in the supper, the Lord's Supper, when he, when he institutes it with his disciples sitting around him, 
and he says, this is my body and this is my blood and I'm coming to you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, come again and again and again. You people that want to have communion with me, that want to see my hand rescue you, I'm doing it right here, right now. Isn't that beautiful? Take courage. Jesus is here. Fear not. And finally, what do we do with this? Number three, you saw the disciples worship Jesus, and that's, that's what we do. Out of response to everything that he's given us and that constant love that pours out on us without hesitation, oithaus immediately, we immediately have a, a, a reaction to that by thanking him. Now, it says that they worshiped him. That's different than just saying thank you, isn't it? If a fireman comes into your house during a fire and he rescues your kids and he rescues your little kitty and whatever else that you need out of the house, you come out on the front lawn and you give him a big hug, right? And you say what? Thank you. I owe you my life. But do you really, do you really mean like I'm going to be your servant for the rest of my life? No, this, this fireman's going to go on. He has his own family. He's going to go on and rescue other people. He's not going to be directly invested in you. But when Jesus comes into our life and he pours out his whole life, gives his whole blood to you, and he says, this is yours. Now that changes it. That's not just a thank you, but that's what? Jesus, how can I use my marriage? Because you're in my marriage to serve you and to serve this other human being. How can I use my singleness in my relationships with other people to, 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 to celebrate how you're my bridegroom and I'm going to live out my life in, in lots of different friendships to bring people to Christ in, in whatever situation that I'm in in my life? How can I in school use all the work that you give me? Not out of fear of performing, but how can I use all the work that you're giving me now how can I use that to serve you and to say, I'm doing my homework, I'm doing my math, which I was never good at. I'm going to do it for Jesus. I'm going to do it for him. I'm going to be a light in this world, in my school, in my work, wherever it is. Do you see what worship is? And so when Paul, the missionary, writes after this a commentary about what it means to live under grace, he talks about this new life that we have, our whole body given over to Jesus in worship. He, he writes this in Romans Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I'm going to close with um, a story. Her name is Annie Flint. She lived a long time ago, but she is uh, a beautiful poet and author. Her life was not easy, but her life and her eyes, if you'd ever meet her, were always on one thing and one thing alone, and that was her Savior. She was born as, well, she was born as the older child of two. She had a little sister. Her mother died when she was about three years old, so she hardly remembers her. She died in childbearing, her sister. From that point on, her dad took those two girls and tried to raise them himself, but he wasn't very good at all. And he gave them away to a friend's widow. Her house was full, and so the daughters were not feel, feeling very wanted their whole life. And eventually, they left that house at a young age as well, without any money. Some family called the Flints, Mr. and Mrs. Flint, heard about this. And they agreed to adopt these two girls at a young age. The Flints were a Christian couple. And they brought up and felt very passionately about instilling the love of Christ in those girls' hearts from an early age. And they did. Brought her to church, brought her to Sunday school. 
And Annie grew up in her faith. She grew up very abandoned, but at the same time, if you read her work, lockstep with her Savior every step of the way. At about, her, her, her original dad died soon after, even though she had a somewhat of a relationship with him. She went to school to be a teacher. She became a teacher, and she finally one day found that her hands hurt terribly. She went to the doctor, and she found out she had chronic arthritis, and it would plague her for the rest of her life in a time when there was no real cure or any kind of medicine to help with this sort of um, disease. And so she was not just in pain, but then her legs and her whole body were overtaken by this arthritis, and she was bound to a wheelchair. She was handicapped the rest of her life. After she found out that she had that chronic illness, her adoptive mother died, and a couple of years later, her adoptive father died, leaving the two girls alone again without any money. She went on to write about her life and to write about it in a beautiful way that you'd never guess that she ever was going through a storm. But when you walk with God, what's a storm? And when you're locked up with your Savior, what are waves? She wrote one of my favorite hymns. As I, as I go on in life, this hymn means more and more to me just because of the words of the hymn. I don't know if I've ever sung it, but it's a beautiful hymn I'm going to put up on the screen for you. It's called, He Giveth More Grace. And if there's anybody in their life that not normally would say, He giveth more grace, it would be Annie, but she's the one that wrote this. And I want to share it with you to close as our prayer. Will you read it with me? He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, He addeth His mercy To multiplied trials, he multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, our days half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limits, his grace has no measure, his power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. Amen.